great to see Ream Library full. Thank you for all of you uh, community members, students, and alums, as I understand it, uh, for joining us today. My name is Vicki Langor. I'm a professor in the Political Science Department and the director of the Peace and Conflict Studies Program here at Holy Cross, and we're delighted today to be able to welcome as a second speaker in our two-part speaker series on Afghanistan, Dr. Patricia Omidyan, who comes to us uh, indirectly from Pakistan. She holds a PhD from the University of California, San Francisco, and the University of California, Berkeley's Joint Program in Medical Anthropology and has worked as an applied anthropologist in Afghanistan and Pakistan since 1997. She also served as the Children and War Advisor for Save the Children United States. In 2001 and 2002, she worked as the Technical Advisor for the Comprehensive Mental Health Program, Coordination of Humanitarian Assistance Afghanistan Program, where she developed one of the first community mental health programs in Afghanistan. She has also worked with the Afghan Women's Network and most recently has been an associate professor and the head of social sciences for the Aga Khan University in Karachi, Pakistan, which is where she comes to us from today or about a week ago. She has a book coming out this fall tentatively titled When Bamboos Bloom, an Anthropologist in Taliban's Afghanistan and coming out from Waveland Press. And what she's going to speak to us about today, as you can see, is Afghan women in post-Taliban Afghanistan. Thank you, Doctor. I want to thank you for inviting me, and, and I'm excited to talk about this. I'm, I'm sort of learning how much people do or do not know about Afghanistan since I live and work over there, and I don't read American press, so I'm not always sure what, what people know. I, I wanted to say also that when I was asked to speak about Afghan women, my first reaction was, oh, no. Not again. So um, I, I would like to say that for all of the problems that Afghan women have, Afghan men have them as well. I think what it is, it's a matter of degrees. And, and maybe some of that will come out in the talk. And if it doesn't, I'd like during discussion time that it opens up and we could explore some of that. Just throw up the map. It sounds like you guys are pretty familiar with, with Afghanistan by now. It is a landlocked country about the size of Texas, and if you've ever been through Texas, you know how long it takes to get across it. Um, just add really bad roads and you get a better sense of Afghanistan. When I was traveling in Taliban time, there were almost no paved roads, which meant we traveled at about 12 to 15 miles per hour for a long time. So a trip that might take you in the United States a matter of two hours would take up to 10 or 15 hours to do the same drive in Afghanistan. It's a lot better now, um, the, relatively speaking. Kabul to Kandahar in Taliban time took 18 hours. It now takes four hours if it weren't for the check posts that you had to stop because there's Taliban Afghan army, Taliban, Afghan army, Taliban, Afghan army, and you get to pay the piper at each one. So, you know, um, travel's relative. Anyway, um, just for a little sense of where I've worked, um, north of Herat, I've done surveys there. I've worked, I actually did gender training in Kandahar in 2002. Ghazni, I did a lot of work there. Jalalabad, up in... Um, above Kunduz in Badakhshan, Mazar-Sharif. I worked for three years as head of the, the Quaker office there in Afghanistan, as AFSC office, 
We built schools primarily in the Central Highlands and up in the north in Faryab. We tried to work in really remote areas, and sometimes we got there by horseback. Really, to give you a sense, you've probably heard these figures, but you can't talk about Afghanistan if you don't really realize how bad it is. The war brought them down below zero, and so any, re any development has to sort of get them up to zero before they can start moving forward. And I mentioned in the class earlier, an example of that is when Karzai came into Kabul and they opened up the Afghan radio station, it was all vacuum tubes. And of course, the students here, they didn't know what a vacuum tube is. Um, it takes a little bit of age, I guess. But that's how far back things are. It is one of the worst in the human poverty index. It's one up from the bottom. I think it's Sierra Leone at the bottom. Um, development index, it's 181 of 182. Probability of, of not surviving to the 40th birthday is, is 40%. Life expectancy at birth is now at just over 43. So we've gained a couple points in the last few years. It was 42. Only 22% of the population has access to clean drinking water. One quarter of the population cannot meet their minimum food requirements. 24% of households are characterized by poor food consumption. When we look at, when we're doing a livelihood study and trying to understand how, what, how close to, to disaster are people, they're all close to disaster. If I ask people, what's your biggest expense, generally they said food. That's one of the markers of people in poverty and at risk. When I asked them what their big, biggest food expense was, if they said rice, I didn't worry about them. If they said tea and sugar, that meant they were at the bottom because that is what they were surviving off of. A lot of people we interviewed were living off of, of tea with sugar in it for energy and bread, and that would be their diet. So chronic malnutrition and um, chronic lack of micronutrients is a major problem there. Almost half of the children under five are underweight. I found it almost impossible to tell by looking how old a child was because I would assume they were five, six, or seven. I would find out they were 12 or 13. Extreme chronic malnutrition, which is going to affect, of course, the outcomes of pregnancy and, and childbirth later on for women. Mortality rates for children is very high, as in one quarter of the children will not reach their fifth birthday. And that has not improved much. And the population is constantly getting younger. The most recent estimates put it at, at um, half, the median is at 17.6. Adult literacy is very bad. Um, I love this adult literacy rate, 28%, because I think we have to always question, what do you mean by literacy? This is often, if you can write your name, you're considered literate. In Afghanistan and countries like that, if they can read the Quran by rote, not knowing what they're reading, they can also be considered literate. So it's, it's iffy. But of those only, of that 28%, 29% are women. In most of the rural areas I've traveled to, I did not meet women who had any literacy. 
at all. So literacy, numeracy were real problems in many areas. Number of girls enrolled. I, the problem with this statistic is I couldn't find one on boys. In a lot of areas, there are no schools. And in a lot of the Taliban areas, boys are not allowed to go to school. So again, when I'm, I'm telling, when I'm, some of these issues we think are gender. They're not necessarily gender. They're issues of poverty. They're issues of access. And they're not necessarily gender biased. Then you add a gender bias on top of that problem. So you get an added kick. So if boys have troubles going to school, girls have even more trouble. 54% of girls under age 18 are married. I don't know the statistic for boys because nobody's asked the question. But in rural areas, it's very common for, for boys in, in, at 16 to be married. And that will come up to another comment as well. There's also, in some of this, there's a real backlash as a lot of agencies go in and try to help women and girls and ignore the boys and the men. We're disrupting a society that is community and family-based. People are not individuals. They are members of families and communities. Boys don't choose who they marry. Boys don't choose what their career will be any more than girls do. The only difference is that if a boy is, is forced to marry the, some, a girl he doesn't want to marry, he can later take it out on her, whereas the girl is the one who suffers that, that extra bit. Okay. Under five, mortality rates have improved according to um, the CIA fact book. According to Ministry of Public Health in Afghanistan, it hasn't improved this much. So again, we have discrepancies of... of this is a quote. This is from the minister of the, it was a district minister, uh, head of the ministry in Badakhshan area, who said it's very bad consequence if a woman, this is referring to maternal death. It's as if the, the dead mother takes the life of her children with her. It destroys the home, a total destruction of the family, and the lack of supervision of the children. The Afghans have a saying that where the men may be form the walls of a house, it's the woman who provides the roof. So if you don't have the mother, there's no protection for the family, and the children suffer, and the family suffers. In many cases, um, some of these pictures, these, these are of, again, Badakhshan, women don't have access to health care. Many women we interviewed will never see a doctor in their lifetime. They haven't yet. The chances of them surviving the next pregnancy are actually quite low. They know that. They tell us that the last month of pregnancy is very frightening because they, they're afraid it's their last. If they die, not only do they die, but it destroys their children as well. They have a real fear of going to the hospital. There's a lot of, uh, there's delay for access to health care because of the expenses. One of the other things we found that one of the key debts that families, poor families have to deal with is health care. A woman actually has to decide, does she gamble with her children's future of going through the expense of getting to a hospital, which may be almost impossible. It may take days and days riding on a donkey, 
or being hand carried out? And does she accept that expense and debt to her family, die on the way or in the hospital, and then have her children suffer from the debt that she incurred doing that? It's a very grim choice. And that was a common quote I heard. We have babies until we die. Another older woman said, I brought 15 children and seven of them are alive, but eight of them have died. I miscarried five of them. Lots of problems and bleeding. I'm weak, have pains, and very bad headaches. I met women who were pregnant as many as 19 to 21 times for older women. An astounding figure. And one woman I interviewed, she had only three children that survived that. Very common to have women pregnant every year. They're breastfeeding, but they're still getting pregnant. So all of our images of breastfeeding prevents pregnancy. When you're not eating adequately and your breast milk is intermittent and other problems, the other thing that's very common is these women have never actually had a normal period cycle. So they don't, they don't know that as well. So with that background, I wanted to talk a little bit about areas of trauma. War and militarized violence. This is a country that's been at war since the 70s. Actually, the first refugee camp for Afghan refugees was set up in Pakistan in 1973. Shortly after Daoud took power in Kabul from Zaire Shah, the Pakistanis set up a refugee camp and started training Hekmatyar, Masood, and a couple others in ways to overthrow the Daoud government or undermine it. And so there was a refugee camp set up for their families so that they would be protected. So the, that lovely connection between the two countries has been volatile for years. Community-based violence and family violence. And it's hard to separate those two. But there was a story that went around during Taliban time, and it was told as a joke, that the man leaves his house and does something, and he gets beaten up by a Taliban. So he's very frustrated. He goes home. He's so frustrated that he beats his wife. She's frustrated because she got beaten up for no reason, so she beats the kids. The kids are frustrated because they got beaten for no reason, so they kick the dog. The dog gets mad because it just got kicked for no reason, so it goes out and bites a Taliban. And I, it's, it really is an illustration of, of the level of frustration. One of the other things we found in a lot of our surveys and trying to understand emotions is, for men, the only public emotion they really can display, they can't do frustration, they can't do grief, they can't do um, shame, but they can display anger. And so you add that into the mix of what is, is publicly allowed to show, and you increase that, that potential level of violence. This young woman lost both of her legs in a landmine accident. She's working now at a, a wonderful center for that um, makes the prosthetic devices in Kabul. Um, the woman who set this up is just this amazing woman. 
who stayed through all of Taliban. And if you met her, you would never picture her under the chadri, but her idea was, you know, burqas are umbrellas. You put it on when you need it, and you take it off when you don't have to use it, and it's not the issue. But anyway, the number of women killed by bombing, drones attacks are very high. The statistics are very hard to find. We started trying, as Quakers, we started trying to track that back, particularly the bombing, because we didn't have the sense of drone attacks uh, back in the in 2004 and 5, but there have been several studies that back in 2002, right after the U.S. was trying to move, you know, clear the Taliban out of Kabul and in the south, one of the leading causes of death to women of childbearing age was, is, Western military action. It comes in several forms. One is direct death, and the other one has to do with transportation. If it's too unsafe to get to health care that does exist, then you don't go. And that is also a factor in, in, in death. When we were interviewing people down in the south, in the area of Kandahar, women told us a lot of stories of that. And they even showed us a camp where Kuchi, the nomadic women, um, had, had been bombed and strafed by um, what they thought were U.S. planes. So there's, there's a risk from all sectors, women particularly, but everybody, men and women, are at risk from NATO, Taliban, al-Qaeda, and the war gets taken out on the civilian populations. Landmines. We have got to get rid of landmines. There is no excuse for the use of landmines. I'm passionate on this one. Most of the people that get hit by landmines are children and civilians, but mostly they're children because it's the children that go out and search for wood. It's the children that have to, to run the herds out in the, the fields, and they're the ones that step on the landmines. The problem is that in most of these areas, you've got no health care. So if you step on a landmine, the chances of your survival are quite slim. It's actually surprising that there's not more people with loss of limbs, but so many people don't survive. Blocked routes to hospitals, clinics, care, it's a major problem. And sometimes it's, it's blocking access to food as well. And that's been a problem. It's also been used, blockades are also used by different factions to try to, to impact a population. Money well spent. Maternal mortality rates have dropped. They went from the worst in the world in Badakhshan to just one of the worst. Um, in one area, it dropped from 6,500 per 100,000 to 2,200 per 100,000. So there's some improvement. Education. Schools are destroyed in Taliban areas. In, almost all the destruction of schools are in Taliban areas. Almost, and most of them actually are boys' schools. It's not just the girls' schools that get hit. Girls are targeted if they're seen going to school. And it's, again, this in some ways comes down to family violence. We have one story where women's space has been collapsed. I think that's the best way to say it. Over the course of all the wars, women's ability to access any 
Anything outside the home in many areas has disappeared. In other areas, it's been cut back. And I found it was very common that boys could harass girls and they felt there was no reason not to. That's a culture change, and I probably should save this, but I'm thinking of it now. There were some girls going to school, and Ghazni had a real problem with with girls and women being harassed in public. And Ghazni is one of the provinces that's really contested by Taliban. It's very close to Kabul. It takes about a half hour, 45 minutes to get there. This was a couple years ago. A friend of mine was running some youth programs down there, and... They wanted to, to change attitudes about women being in public. It started because some, the boys, when they were on their way to school, if they had motorbikes, they would harass the girls walking to school, even though the girls were fully covered in the chadari and couldn't be identified. And there was one case where a girl had permission from her mother. Her father didn't know she was going to school, and I'm not sure her brother did either. But she put on her chadri, she went with her friends, and some boys came up and they were trying to hit the girls with the motorbikes. And two motorbikes came around and they caught the girl between. They killed her. One of the boys on the motorbike was the, the brother of the girl they killed. And it started a movement among the youth. And so the youth decided, this has got to, you know, we gotta, this has got to stop. So the youth formed a group and went to the different mullahs in the mosque and said, can you talk in the Friday lecture about how the Quran requires that we respect women and women have a right to public space? And the mullahs said yes, and they started that, but then they actually got stopped because there's edicts from Kabul basically that what is said by the mullahs is controlled because they don't want the fiery anti-whatever discussions, and it wasn't approved lectures, so it wasn't allowed. So there's all kinds of, of political things that go on. The other thing I think very interesting, though, coming back to this, is that there's actually more children in school per population in Afghanistan than Pakistan. And we think of Pakistan, well, maybe you don't. Um, <laughs> it's been a longer government. <laughs> Has more schools or something. This is actually a picture of one of the, the World Food Program widows' bakeries that have been going on for a number of years now. There's over 70,000 widows in Kabul alone, over a million in the country. And this is a real problem in a country where men are the wage earners. It's the way the society is structured. It's expected. It's changing radically. But there's a lot of backlash to that change. But it really puts women and widows at greater risk. Of the women-headed households, not all of them are widows, but many of them are wives of hus- very, very old husbands, who can't work anymore, or husbands who are disabled, either physically or mentally. So that number is included in there. Family violence. Um, as the story I gave you shows, violence is very pervasive. 
But if all you've known is war, a median population age is 17.9. The war has been going for 30 years. What else do you know? Over 90% of the population has had to move at least once because of war. So that's all you've got. So violence is, is very hard. I put early marriages here under violence as well. 57% of, of girls are married before the legal age, and forced marriages are very common. But forced marriages are the norm in many ways. And I found it interesting in families that I worked with that even when girls were given a choice, they often didn't feel like they had the, the strength or the place to tell their father or mother that they didn't like the choice. At the same time, I've seen boys in the same position where they, I have one young friend who wants to get married to this young woman and his parents say, no, no way, you cannot marry her, you are going to marry your cousin, that's it. So forced marriage is, is, is relative. There's a big problem when, when there's a huge age difference and it is not uncommon. And second marriages are not uncommon. And I have had lots of stories about young women who have tried to commit suicide or who have committed suicide. And generally, the method of suicide is to pour kerosene or something over and, and light the match. So it's a horrible, horrible way. Although I have one story that is a little bit lighter. A young woman in a, a village, it's a, a Pashtun family, she really, she's getting older, she's 26, and that was really old, especially in this village. And she fell in love with a really cute 18-year-old guy. And she really wanted to marry him. Luckily, her father was the head of the village. So her brothers went to the young man and said, we're so happy for you. You get to marry our sister. And if you don't want to marry our sister, you're dead. And if you ever beat our sister, you're dead. And at the wedding, and she, bless her heart, she really wasn't very pretty. And the way they put makeup on back then, because this was right up, village makeup style, and it looked like it was put on with a trowel and scary. She sat through her, and, and women are usually, when they get married, you know, they're very careful, and eyes down, and they can't look too happy. And she sat there grinning. She was so happy. She's like, and he sat there like this. And I felt so sorry for him. So forced marriages happen. Domestic violence, I think what's a huge tragedy about domestic violence is that it is pervasive. But what we found in many of the studies is the mo most of the violence is perpetuated woman to woman. Mother-in-laws, sister-in-laws, daughter-in-laws to mother-in-laws. There's actually, uh, it's very hard to get any numbers on it. I've got some anecdotal information. And as an anthropologist, that's okay. Um, We've got it on elderly abuse as well. So, but the violence in the home tends to be, 
between women, men really are more peripheral to that. What was interesting, though, is that um, family violence is not valued. It is not seen as healthy. It is seen as common. And I think it's really important to separate the notion of what's normal, common, and what's normal, okay. Because for Afghans, it actually wasn't okay. Men would come, and, and many of our programs, particularly for AFSC, men would come to us and say, look, I'm angry. I don't know how to, what to do about it. Can you help? Because I keep taking it out on my wife. I beat my wife, and it's not about her. It's about everything else. But I take it out on her, and it's not fair. That's a huge step. In domestic violence programs, that's where you try to get men too, so you can start working. Women would talk about, my husband beats me, I hate it when he does it, but I know it's not anything I did. That's, you're halfway home. And we did have some ways that we could, we could start talking about that with them. So it's not valued, and I think that's so important. But what they're asking for us, from us are tools and other ways, and I think it's part of the culture shift that's, that's occurring. Access? Well, access is kind of interesting. Um, wealth has its privileges, and there is, of course, a, a growing divide between some haves and mostly have-nots, since 85% of the population seems to be have-nots. But even wealth doesn't guarantee that you get good health care. Three young friends of mine all had miscarriages, stillbirths, or major problems, and usually because of incompetency from the medical system. High-quality care doesn't exist particularly there. The other problem that I see is that it doesn't matter your age, but there's actually a law in the books that once you're married, you can't go to school. And so it makes it very difficult for young women, if they are married early, to continue their education. Structural blocks are both social and legal. So you have society's blocks, and then there's also legal ones that come up. And you've probably heard some lately. I think it was, I don't know how many months ago, there was some that, uh, around Shia, the Shia community. There's also blocks for men. It's very difficult, and a lot of men are really struggling because many of the programs from the West come in focusing on women, and they ignore the men or they exclude the men, and it creates a lot of resentment. One of my favorite stories is from World Food Program under Taliban, and World Food Programs had an, uh, a requirement that 65% of their direct beneficiaries, meaning if it's a work for food program, 65% of the people working had to be women because they wanted to increase the access of women to food and directly to resources. And these were road building projects. And 65% of the, of the road builders were supposed to be women. But the women in this society, in this area, were also already in charge of all the animal care. And they were already in charge of all the household care. And now they were supposed to go out and build roads for their, their food. And the men would sit at home. And I don't know what World Food Program thought, but the men didn't suddenly learn how to cook and clean. 
So that is a problem. It causes a lot of resentment. There's a lot of resentment around education because there's a lot more programs for girls to get educated and money for education than there are for boys. But in the society, boys are seen as the ones who have to raise the family, bring the income for the family. And so it, it creates real tension, and it's, it's not surprising. Women's status and how have I seen it change? We have women in parliament. But that number, I think, is going to drop radically because there's the harassment toward women is increasing. Women educators, it's, women have always been expected to be educators. Most of your teachers are educators. It's interesting, Kabul University has more than 50% women attending. And in medical school, it's even higher than that, although I can't remember what the numbers are. Women activists. And this, women activists, Afghan women are strong. I don't see Afghan women as victims, and I really hate when I get that portrayal. That's not what I see. Women are actively involved in their families, their communities. They, are try, they make change. They are part of the change process. We can really quickly undermine that if we forget that women are part of their families. We need to find ways to support them as they invite us in to the ways they need to be supported. They need to ask us how we can best help them. But it's not by coming in and deciding that burqas are bad or, you know, some of our notions that have nothing to do with their reality. And I don't know of any woman who would want, oh, um, education. That was a story I wanted to tell. One of the good examples of what happens if you focus only on women actually occurred in Pakistan. The Aga Khan, if you, I don't know if you know who he is, but it's, he's the head of the Ismaili sect, and he's very progressive. He made a decision that for poor Ismailis, if you have only enough money to educate one of your children, educate the girl, because she's the one who will educate the next generation. Sounds really great. What happened in the north of Pakistan among the Ismaili community is we got a very large number of educated young women with no educated men for them to marry. So they're leaving the northern areas for foreign countries, actually, and looking for spouses elsewhere. So the men are left uneducated at home with nobody to marry, and the, the young women are leaving. So balance is very important. Culture shifts. There's been a real breakdown over the years in community support. And I think that's, if we want to really help Afghanistan, we can help in ways they invite us to, to help them get back their communities. In the past, they used to say it takes a community to raise a child. And they really believe that. But that's really changed. And some of the problems for both men and women and girls is that that has changed. It comes back to that her boys thinking they can harass girls in public. In the past, and in fact in NWFP Pakistan, if, boy, if a boy harasses a girl in public, he will be immediately stopped by some adult that is there. 
not by a family member, but by any adult in the community will stop him from harassing a, you know, a non-family girl. Automatic. That doesn't happen anymore in Afghanistan. So there's been a real breakdown. Problems of degrees, human rights issues for both men and women, and women have an extra burden on that. Men have more options. And then the rural-urban divide is really increasing. And, and I see that happening. Education, even if it gets out into the rural areas, the resources aren't there to match it. So the, it doesn't stay. There's... Just to tell you, this picture was done by an Afghan refugee who had been living in Iran, and she was picked up on the street by the, the Iranian police and shipped immediately out of Iran to Afghanistan and dropped in Herat without her family. So her family didn't know where she was, and she doesn't know where her family is. She was stuck in a transition center at UNHCR, but I thought the picture was very, says it all. Lighter note, I think we have choices. And I think we have to move away from this model. It's not gonna help us to educate girls if all the boys have is, is war. This was developed while, while I was working with an Afghan NGO, and we. It's a um, sort of several stages. It has to do with conflict resolution negotiation and peace building. It has to do with psychosocial wellness. And then the programs we, we used, we integrated it with Islam and, and the community's own culture norms. So there, as we're doing the programs, the, the people in the groups, and we usually run them in groups of maybe 15 to 20 men or 15 to 20 women, and they're asked in the process to also recall phrases, um, either ayats from the Quran or hadiths, which are sayings of the prophet, or, or, or Sufi poetry <laughs> that will help support sort of the changes that they are wanting. So it's also, it's, we're not trying to impose something on them, but we help them explore what's normal. I think one of the activities we always start with is what's normal. And we try to pull away from what's common, but what, what is valued, what's normal and valued, so that in your own community, what is it that you think is the way a man should be? What are, what are the values that you want to see in your son as he grows? Something like that. And then they talk about that, and they come up with this set. And then they can talk about, so where are we now, and how do we get back to here? And that's one of the other ways we do it. So it's very locally based. They tend to live in extended family households. So you've got multiple generations and often wives of several brothers, or you'll have a brother bring in his wife and then the sister-in-law. She has to deal with her brother's wife, who maybe she doesn't like or whatever. There's a, there's, it's issues of resources. It's issues of space. And very often, you know, in, in Kabul, for instance, if you're poor and you don't own your own house, you're going to have to rent. And rent of a room in Kabul is very expensive. So you may have 12 people living in one room. So just that tight proximity increases the violence. But I'd say a lot of it's about power and control. I think a lot of the hope we had right after Taliban has not materialized. 
But there are things that we can do now and that Afghan women can do now that you couldn't do under Taliban. So, there, yeah, there's changes. But a lot of the problems under Taliban, it, well, it depends on where. It just depends on where. Which city you're at. If you're in Kandahar, no, things haven't gotten better. In some ways, it's gotten worse because it's heavy fighting still. In Kabul, girls can go to school. And under Taliban, they had to sneak into homeschooling. But under Taliban time, there were more girls' schools than any time before Taliban because all the teachers from urban areas went back to their villages. A lot of them opened schools. In the Central Highlands, I did a survey of over 40 girls' schools during Taliban time. So it's, it's so relative to the particular place. Yeah, up in the north, in Mazar, I would say, because Taliban really had control only a very short time there, I'm not sure that much has changed you know, because from the before to now. What's interesting, though, and is that women's space have shrunk and it doesn't seem to be re-expanding from the wars, because the war is in many ways still going on and people are still afraid. During the Shah and Daoud's time and the communist time in Kabul, women wore Western clothes. Women at the universities did not wear head coverings unless someone died. So they wore even mini skirts, go-go boots, nylons. You know, you see the pictures of these women and you look at how they make their daughters dress and the daughters are going, wait, mom? But then the daughters wouldn't want to dress like that either because things have changed. But it, it, it's, it's so incongruous. It just, it, it's hard to, to explain. And, and that space has just gotten smaller and smaller and I think that's one of the problems. As long as the war is continuing, it's going to continue to shrink, I think. Because a lot, of, a lot of it about women is protection. And families who are keeping their daughters home are often doing it because they, they want the best for their daughters. They don't want their daughters killed, kidnapped. There's a fear of kidnapping. Some areas it's real, some areas it may not be. So there's all kinds of reasons families do this. The one difference, for instance, with head coverings is under Taliban, it wasn't a choice. Women had to cover. Now it's the family decides again. So that's gone back to a family decision. There's a lot of helping your poor relative, helping your poor neighbor, sending things around. But the, the number of beggars has increased to such an astronomical level. You're inundated. Um, so that's a problem. But, you know, in terms of giving, I think one of the, the nicest things I saw when I was in Kabul when the earthquake hit in Pakistan and, and Kashmir, and the Afghans started collecting everything they could to send to the people in, in Pakistan. Huge. You could just, my office, the, the office staff got together. They knew a Pakistani man who was from the northern part of, from the region where the earthquake was. And they collected, and these were like cleaners and guards. They were making just minimum wage. They were making 100 a month. But they would put, you know, $5 toward this. They really gave a lot. It is interesting. I think it is, it's overwhelming the number of beggars. 
and it's at a level that I don't think Afghanistan had. I was in Peshawar when 9-11 hit, and I was working at CHA, that agency that was working on mental health. The Afghans wanted the U.S. to immediately come in and get rid of the Taliban, and they really wanted to see rapid change. They wanted Taliban out. They wanted to get a government in. They wanted to get back to normal lives. They're tired of war. That actually hasn't stopped. They really don't want the Americans to leave. I would say the percentage of Afghans who would want the Americans to leave is so small, probably just 1% or 2%. The Americans came in with their own agenda, and with almost no one, I would say zero understanding of the culture and language, they had no idea of what local factions could mean and do. When I was doing the maternal mortality study in 2002 down in Kandahar, it was really clear the Americans were clueless. They would come into, at the saying of, of somebody, they would go in and arrest every man in a village who was over 15 or 16 years old, haul them off to be interviewed and interrogated for several days, and then finally return most of them. One of the cases that happened, and it was quite a, it hit all the news, I think. They had done that on the say of a rival warlord, who as soon as the men were removed, went in and robbed the village blind, Women were kidnapped. I mean, it was just devastating. When I was doing that survey in 2002, I, we rolled into a village to do, that was selected by UNICEF for us to interview. There were no men there. The night before, the U.S. had come in and arrested every man in the village. So here were these women, scared to death, and we drive in. It was not a safe um, survey. That type of thing was, is, was a problem, and in many ways it, it's, it's less so now. They're getting better at that. But they would put rewards on, you know, for information, and people go, great. She's a Taliban. You know, and, and it was that blatant, you know, so there was that problem. The other big problem that happened in that, particularly in the early time, is they would come in, and if they found a few weapons, they would arrest people. If they found a ton of heroin, they would say, not my job, and close the door and move on and leave it. So we were so into what our own agenda was. That was the only thing that mattered, and it really set up big problems. By not knowing local culture and, and not knowing how to be just basically polite, then we insulted a lot of people as well. The Afghans couldn't believe the women soldiers were women. It's very common for a woman to have to go into a house and literally remove her shirt to prove that, yes, see, I really am a woman. You really can talk to me because they didn't look like women. So, you know, there were all kinds of problems. It's getting better, but I hope it's not too late. How do you make peace with guns? I haven't figured that out. Maybe I've been hanging out with the Quakers too long. But how do you force peace with a gun? Um, People need other tools. They know how to fight. They did, you know, they beat the Russians in that way. 
we're doing, and we're doing the exact same things the Russians did in the same order. So we're not going to beat it by doing the same game. We've got to do something different. I think we do it through education, capacity building, support. We need to hear what they need and respond in that way rather than working from as much of our own agenda. They want peace. They're tired of war. This is the normal garbage in the country. I've got pictures where they've built bridges, and the bridges are supported by old tanks. You know, they, they know, they know war. They need something else. And so I think that's the only way you're going to do it. The other thing about war is it plays into old rivalries, and it just enhances and guarantees that those continue. I think there's a realization that, that you can talk about violence at multiple levels. It's very easy when you're talking about peace and conflict that you think about it in terms of global or regional or national. But when you've got people who are really ready to start at roots of violence down in their home and in their own social relations, then you've really moved ahead. You start from, you know, you're really starting from a forward point to move forward. But, they, but, the, but the question is very real. So what do I do instead? Or how do, what do I do about this anger? You know, I mean, this is somebody who watched, you know, one of the cases, a man had been driving a truck with his sister, her family, her babies, her furniture, and he got out at a check post on a hill and forgot to hit, to really pull the emergency brake. The truck rolled off a cliff, killing everybody. You know, and he's holding that anger at himself. And then that comes out. You know. So, so much of that violence, you know, he can't grieve in public, but he can go knife somebody or hit his wife, you know. So he needs tools. He needs other ways. And so that's, that's what we try to work on in our, in our mental health program and, and in trying to help people see that there's some other things to do, and you've got it in your own culture. So what are, what are the good ways in your culture to, to deal with this? What are some of the other ways? The Afghans were, that I know, I better keep qualifying this, the Afghans that I know were really hopeful with Obama. They were thrilled, and the fact that he had a Muslim middle name was just, wow! You know, they didn't mind that he wasn't Muslim. He had the name, you know. Um, and he talked right. You know, so they were really hopeful. I think I've been watching the hope really crumble. And most of the letters now from my friends are getting pretty, pretty dismal. I think if it were more security and not security military, security police. Because, see, my sense, and I'm probably all wrong, but I'm an anthropologist, what do I know? Um, my sense is that if we shifted things out of war of terror into illegal activity and it became a police matter instead of a military matter, you know, setting a bomb seems to me an illegal act. It seems like that would be one way to shift the focus. Now, the Afghan police are really incompetent right now. They need help. So maybe... My sense is if we stopped doing it as war and started thinking more in police and building the justice system and such like that, then you can deal with it in a very different level. 
Because one of the problems you have in Afghanistan is that everybody, every family has a Talib, a communist, a secular, you know, a Mojahideen. You know, they're all brothers and cousins and uncles and whatever. So everybody, they already know each other. So it seems that that might be the way to diffuse it, maybe take it out of being an ethnic problem because most Talibs are Pashtuns, but not all Pashtuns are Talibs, you know, and, and bring it into maybe a manageable, I don't know. I don't know if it'd work, but it seems like it'd be much more logical than what we're trying now. They want the Europeans and Americans there. They would want them to be more culturally sensitive, and that does seem to be happening. Um, the drone attacks are deadly. They just, lo that loses confidence. Um, one of the other problems is, has a lot to do with how the money has come into the country. And it's typical of all bilateral aid. You give aid so you can take it back home. And when, when you have a country that's down to zero and the money leaves and doesn't stay, it shows. It may not show as much in Egypt or someplace else like that, but it really shows in Afghanistan. So I think that would be one of the other issues. One of my favorite books is Veronica Doubleday's Three Women of Herat. And it's a delightful book. She, was, she is the wife of an ethnomusicologist. And this, she wrote this book about their time in the 70s in Herat. I think what's good about it is that things haven't changed that much. And it's about women musicians in Herat. Some of them are professional and some of them are just women musicians. And what's fun is one of my last trips to Herat under the Taliban was we were waiting for the ICRC flight to come in. The man who was the driver in the truck next to me started singing at the top of his voice. And it was a, it was a, a hoot because he started singing Russian drinking songs and then opera and then some Afghan stuff and then back to a Russian song. And I, mean, and I looked at him like, are you crazy? The Taliban are right here. And he said, I'll die for the music. And I found out he was the son of one of the women she wrote about. So anyway, it's, it's a lovely book. It's very readable and... And things haven't changed that much. So, Well, of course the, gov the, the country will survive. Would the government survive? Mm, I don't think so. Would the rest of the world survive is another question. It really was, you know, when you have a place like that that is so inaccessible and other groups are able to come in and set up these training camps, and the training camps existed. I've been within miles of them. And they really did exist, and they really do exist in both Pakistan and Afghanistan. Do we want any more of those, and, but how do we prevent them? I don't think the world can turn its back on Afghanistan. I don't think it should. I think we're morally obligated, because, and particularly the U.S., because really in many ways it's the U.S. that set this thing up. And if you watch Charlie Wilson's war, at the end of that he sort of says, wait a minute, we can't just walk away. You know, we, we dumped all these weapons there and then we walked away. We have a responsibility. I, I, I think the globe has a responsibility to the globe.